All right, guys, before we get started, got to give a big shout out to everybody who's been hitting us up on social media. Thank you so much for reaching out to us. Tell us what you think about our San Diego Comic-Con content. We're getting some great feedback from that. Tell us about the funny conversations Matt and I are having. Thank you for listening to those. Tell your friends about us. Leave a review on Apple Podcasts. That really helps us out. And keep up with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at LaunchpadPod and on our website, launchpadpod.com. Today, we're dropping another little bit of San Diego Comic-Con content. This is an awesome interview that Matt got with Kurt Busick. I was in Hall H watching The Walking Dead talk about Season 10, which I am so excited for. It has been a really fun ride working on it, and we are going to have some awesome Awesome episodes for the fans of The Walking Dead. But while I was doing that, Matt was out getting a couple interviews and he talked to Kurt Busick, who he's done like everything. He's written for Image, Marvel, DC, but he is mainly known. Well, I mean, he's known for so much, but some of the really cool stuff that he's done is he did Marvels. Yes, those Marvels, the ones that Alex Ross did. He wrote the comics. Alex Ross did the art, and it is one of the most beautiful comic books you could ever read. If you haven't read Marvels, you should check it out. They're incredible. Such a neat concept. Really cool art. Again, Alex Ross, how could you go wrong? And great writing. I mean, Kurt killed it with this series. He also created the Thunderbolts, which is a really fascinating team of superheroes because they're not superheroes. They're actually supervillains that are banding together to get a common goal done. Really interesting team. Really interesting comic book. And he talks with Matt about how he created that. But enough talking it up. Let's listen to the interview. Ignition sequence start. Six, five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. All right, Launchpad Podcast. We are here at San Diego Comic-Con 2019, and I am talking with Kurt Busick. Kurt Busick is a acclaimed writer of things like Marvels with Alex Ross. It's the 25th anniversary. I could talk all day about Marvels, but let's start there and go to the thing that I really actually want to talk to you about. Okay. Is, is, that, is that an idea that, like, it just seems so brilliant? Did it come to you one day, or were you developing it, or did someone tell you to come up with a story in these parameters? How, how did that genesis come about? It came from two different roles. One of the roots was when I started reading comics regularly, I was 14 years old. I would, you know, walk to school and instead of thinking, wow, what it would be, what, what would it be like to be Spider-Man? What would it be like to be the Human Torch? I think, what, what would it be like if Spider-Man was like vaulting over that telephone pole? What would it be like if Iron Man was rocketing up Mass Ave straight through the center of town? And this is you as a kid the in window. Boston, right? In, uh, in the suburban Boston, yeah. And you're, this is you as a kid thinking what it would be like if you were in the world of superheroes, not part of the world right, of superheroes. Right, right. Wow. I, I was thinking what would it be like to be a witness to it. Um, you know, and I would, my sisters had, at least one of my sisters had a poster of Sean Cassidy. Wait a minute, was it, it might have been David Cassidy back then. And and I think in the Marvel Universe, who would, you know, who would be that, that teen dream poster boy? Wouldn't be Spider-Man because he's scary. Right. It wouldn't be Captain America because he wouldn't do that unless it was for charity. It'd be the Human Torch, right? Sure. There's, some, there's posters on teenage girls' walls of the Human Torch wearing no shirt with his, uh, with his jeans unsnapped, looking sexy at the camera, maybe smoldering a little, literally smoldering. Um, and th so I would think, you know, what, what else is going on? What is it like? And that's, that's part one. I managed to do a couple of stories at Marvel. I did an Iron Man story that ran in a Marvel Superheroes and an Avengers annual backup where I got to do stories about somebody normal in the Marvel Universe. One was about a guy 
who worked in the Stark Industries motor pool, and he kept on putting in an application for transfer. He wanted to be Iron Man. They said Iron Man was an employee, so, you know, why not? Mm-hmm. And the other was about a kid who living in Iowa on the day that the Avengers come into town to fight the Sons of the Serpent. And what he doesn't know is that the leader of this chapter of the Sons of the Serpent is his older brother. So wow. he's a big Avengers fan. And they're, you know, but, but you know, he wants to see the Avengers kick ass. But then it turns out the Avengers are kicking his brother's ass. So what is that like for him? And I had done those couple of stories and I wanted to do more stuff like that. But at the same time, uh, Alex, I knew Alex because I had been editing uh, a series called Open Space for Marvel. Didn't last very long. Um, Alex did a story for it, and uh, it was supposed to run in issue six. Uh, Open Space was canceled with issue four. So, oh. so, but Alex knew me. Alex knew that I had you know connections at Marvel. So he wanted to do some sort of painted anthology about Marvel superheroes. And so he sent me a proposal packet for it. That was mostly, you know, that Human Torch story that opens the, yeah. the, the volume and presentation paintings of characters he thought were important through Marvel history, which included Gwen Stacy and the original Human Torch. So there was a long pathway to this turning into something real. But Alex wanted to paint these various characters. And if it's going to be involved with the Human Torch, the original Human Torch, that's going to be set in the 40s. Sure. And if it's going to involve Gwen Stacy, that's going to be set in the 70s or earlier. Um, so that makes it a period piece. So I wanted to tell stories about the human viewpoint on the Marvels. Alex wanted to tell stories that needed to be told if you wanted to combine them all into one story as a period piece. Um, and uh, it, it, it kind of stitched together from that. So it wasn't wow. any sort of stroke of genius or anything. It was a, how do we accomplish? I mean, mostly I was thinking, how do we do stories? How do we do a story that includes all these characters Alex wants to do? Um, Alex had on his own thought about using some sort of reporter character in one or two of the stories. I said, you know, I came up with the idea of using a photojournalist, someone who's taking pictures, um, somebody who's there through the whole thing. And, uh, you know, that fit with Alex's reporter idea. Um, uh, and it all, you know, it all came together that way. Now, this is you speaking as a creator, as a, as a member of the audience of, of any particular medium, whether it's film or television or comics, do you find that you are drawn more to stories that are grounded with a central, uh, more relatable character? So whether it's a horror movie or a monster movie or, or, or superhero story, are, do, you, do, the, do the stories that, that, that start and end with the man on the street, is that something that, that you like to read or watch as an audience member? I want stories that have humanity to them. It doesn't have to be an outsider story. It doesn't have to be a viewpoint of the man on the street. That worked for Marvels, and it worked for any number of things that I've done uh, d- done elsewhere. But, but for instance, I'm a big fan of John Sanford's uh, uh, crime novels, and one of the reasons I'm a fan of them is that his his characters are tend to be policemen. But they go to work and they bullshit with each other and they get down to the case and they figure things out and they, they make fun of each other and they have, you know, friendships and rivalries and and I believe them. You know, I believe them as people. I've met people like that. Um, I read a, another uh, crime novel recently where I didn't buy any of the characters. You know, they were just there to symbolize something or do a job. Mm-hmm. They didn't feel like people and I just couldn't get into the story because I didn't care about anybody. I want that human connection. It doesn't have to be an outsider connection. It just has to, it has to be that, that humanity. 
I got into comics late in the game. I was in my mid-20s when I really started to read comics. And one of the first times that I read comics, I was going on a trip, and everybody was like, oh, borrow some of my graphic novels. He's like, borrow some of my graphic novels, my trades. And I picked Marvels out of the bunch just because the cover was brilliant. Well, it was just brilliant. It was beautiful. And reading it, subconsciously, I didn't realize that the main character was, you know, I didn't realize that the story was centered around the human characters as opposed to the superheroes, which is not traditional. I wasn't thinking about that yet. But when the coming of Galactus happened, Mm -hmm. in my mind, it reminded me of the first couple Godzilla movies which are told from the human standpoint, and Godzilla is a menace. He's not the hero of the film. Uh And I just remember, like what you were saying about how you were a child and thinking about what it would be like with Spider-Man swinging around. I remember thinking, what would it be like if Galactus came and made his pronouncement to New York City? Like, I... I, I thought that was amazing, and I was like, okay, this is a pretty cool medium here. And I just was hooked by that book. Well, thank you. Thank you. Actually, when my mother read that story, she's, uh, you know, older than I am. Uh, into Galactus? For, she's a big Marvel superhero no, no, girl? No, she's, uh, she, because she doesn't know much about superheroes, she doesn't bring to the reading sure, yeah. a knowledge of, oh, this is a Fantastic Four story. This, and she said that was a really good Cuban Missile Crisis story. Oh, interesting. And I thought, yeah, okay, that's not what I set out to do. But I bet you that's what Jack Kirby and Stan Lee set out sure. to do. That that this was 65. This was only a few years after the Cuban Missile Crisis. And there was still a lot of, of uh, fear that, you know, there would be a nuclear war and and we wouldn't be able to do anything to stop it. And, you know, powerless in the face of that kind of possibly global destruction. Um, that's got to be what was going on in at least Kirby's mind mm-hmm. uh, when he was doing the plotting and penciling for the Galactus story, he put a suit of armor around, you know, mutual assured destruction. My mother's reaction to the story was a lesson to me on both how you perceive a story based on where you come from as a reader. And also it was, you know, it was an illumination of, you know, my mother was a little bit younger than Stan or Jack. Mm Mm-hmm. You know, she was like 15 years younger than Jack, but she had the historical perspective to see patterns in it that I didn't see, which made me go, yeah, well, Stan and Jack were there. You know, they they knew those patterns. They were building off of those patterns and that social awareness. So I learned a little bit more about uh, about the history of the stories that I loved just by seeing it again through someone else's eyes. And that's amazing. And I think that speaks to the timelessness of that story in particular. But also I feel like a lot of comics and film is like this as well. It creates that framework where the viewer or the audience brings their own experiences into it and they can make their own metaphors that fit just as perfect as whether the ones you as the writer or creator intended or maybe just me as a different audience member, I can bring different stuff to that. Mm -hmm. And I think that that helps perpetuate the fandom and the love for these stories. And I think that's what makes Marvels in particular something that will stand. The, I mean, it's already stand the, stood, stood the test of time for 25 years, right? Still it's, strong. I think that's, that's part of it. We've, we've been there for a while, yeah. It's cool, too. It's because one of those stories that if someone hadn't read comics, like if I was in my friend's position, I wouldn't have given me that story to read because I feel that not that you can't understand it, but you don't you wouldn't have the same recognition and the, the same feelings reading that with, you know, as your first, what, 10th comic book, maybe. It's, it's, it's weird. I hear that from people a lot, but I also hear from people, that was the first comic I read. Interesting. You know, that, was the, that was the comic that introduced me to the Marvel Universe. And I feel like if, if you read Marvels, by the time you're done with it, you haven't just gotten this story about Phil Sheldon, but you know sure. Marvel had these Golden Age heroes. Uh, Marvel, you know, after a while, heroes returned. We had the Fantastic Four, we had the Avengers. Spider-Man is scary. The X-Men are, are, are feared and hated for 
being a, a, a you know a, a, a racial subgroup um, uh, that we didn't cover a whole lot with you know Thor or the Hulk, but the main structure mm-hmm. of the Marvel universe, the idea of the Fantastic Four do this, the Avengers do this, Spider Man does this, X Men do this. Um, and there's this history going back to the 40s. It's all there. Right. You know? So it wasn't our intent doing the book. We wanted to give you that that uh, uh, that sense of what would it be like to be there. We, you know, and at the same time, we were doing what amounted to a, a kind of a primer on, uh, you know, here's everything you need to know to understand the Marvel right, Universe. Right, right. So if, now, here yeah, the next question for that then is, that it was a six-issue series, right? Four. Four issues. So four issues, let's say that's under 200 pages, right? Just over. How did you, I guess you and Alex, was it even your call, how did you guys figure out what Keystone Marvel events were going in and what had to get cut? That was that was me, and that was another... When we started, when we initially pitched it, we were asked to pitch it by Marcus McLaurin, the editor. And uh, when we initially pitched it, it was six issues long. Every issue had two stories in it. Um, and we were making up, you know, here's where Phil meets the Human Torch. Here's where Phil meets Doctor Doom. Here's where Phil meets... You know, and they were all new stories. Um, and Tom DeFalco, who was at the time the editor-in-chief, uh, he said, if you're going to do this sort of, you know, looking at the past history of Marvel, use the real stories. Mm-hmm. You know, use Galactus. Use the Fantastic Four origin, whatever. There's lots of important moments. So instead of making stuff up, use those. And up until that point, Alex has described it as that's the point where it stopped being our story and went on to being my story. Because all of the stories that we came up with, we batted back and forth. And when Tom said, do it this way, I just went away, pulled apart what we had, built it around, you know, important elements and came back. You know, what I was trying to do was I was trying to include as many of the characters that Alex wanted to cover. But I also, you know, the birth of the Human Torch is where it all starts. Sure. Doing research in the, uh, into Marvel history, having the, the um, uh, Namor's, you know, the, the, one of the Namor torch battles and then Namor flooding That was Manhattan. another Godzilla moment for me in that book where I was like, well, wow, what would that be like? I went through all the, the history of the eras that we were covering and said, what would be publicly seen? What would be publicly known? It's partly so that I could, you know, say... While this is going on, you know, the newspapers are reporting about this sure. happening in Madison Square Garden or Captain America busting up a, a, an oil syndicate or something. But at the same time, you know, I was also looking for what would, you know, what would be the big stuff in the news? What would be the splashy stuff? You know, when you think back on the Golden Age Marvel stuff, you think that Human Torch, no, Namor fight. And that's really about it. Origins and that. So when I read a bunch of them on Microfish and I ran into, Jesus, Namor... You know, Namor used tidal wave to flood Manhattan. Yeah. That's our big climactic moment. Doing things like that, I was also able to, to say, okay, going by X-Men continuity, Human Torch guest stars in X-Men like 13, and he's talking about how the wedding is coming up. Mm-hmm. By the end of that particular story, the X-Men are all injured. And then in the next story, they get out of being injured and they're all going on vacation and the Sentinels attack. And by the end of that story, they're all injured again. Mm-hmm. And then in the next story, you know, they're recovering from being injured. There aren't any gaps there. Right. So when does the wedding happen? And it has to be while they were going on vacation, <laughs> which means that the Sentinels had to attack the same night as the Fantastic Four wedding. Uh, you know, that wasn't something where I went oh, it would be cool if, and it wasn't something right. that had been established before. It was something that the research said, the only way 
X-Men continuity and Fantastic Four continuity fits together. They were at the wedding. The only time they can be at the wedding uninjured for like a year's worth of issues is at that moment, which means this is also happening. And boom, there's my second issue, you know, the whole second and third act of the of the story. So a lot of it was was figuring out the research. <laughs> a lot of math there in, in fake calendar days. Yeah, but I put together all of that into an outline uh, and sent it to Alex before we sent it to Marvel. And Alex was, yeah, this all works. This is good. And he's starting to go, oh, I get to paint the Galactus story. <sighs> um, and instead of having a, a story where Phil Sheldon meets Gwen Stacy, he gets to ha- we get to paint the story, the Gwen yeah. Stacy story. So that was a point where Alex gave up a lot of, you know, a lot of the plot input that he, you know, we'd intended for him to have all along, but he gained, you know, I get to, I get to make realistic and painterly all of these really important moments. So a little bit of trade off there. Well, before we step away from Marvel's of the, the key moments that are in that book, is there anyone that you as a fan were excited to give your version of or, or nervous to give your version of? It's funny, my answers, you know, that immediately bubble up into my brain are more craft answers than fan answers. But, you know, it was a treat to treat Galactus like that, you know, like the yeah. way we did it from a, oh, my God, the world is going to end. It was fun to do things like, you know, there was an Avengers Day celebration in New York. We were showing the Avengers all on stage, except Captain America had quit very temporarily. Right. So... Uh, Alex painted in a cardboard stand-up Captain America. And if you look at it closely, you can see, yeah, it's flat. Yeah, that's, not, that's not the real Cap. He's just there because he couldn't attend. And finding, you know, I loved finding the little details like yeah. that. Um, You're in the book, aren't you? Uh, Twice, I'm, I think. I'm in the book a couple of times. I'm a, <laughs> uh, a Daily Bugle reporter, and later I'm a, a, a drunk. Um, <laughs> okay, so. <laughs> I'm, 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 in, I'm in issue three because Alex was working on issue three when the Chicago con happened. So I was out in Chicago to, uh, you know, promote things and be at the show. And, and so I was there and Alex said, Hey, you know, you and your wife come by, we'll take pictures of you. And, uh, uh, I we're in the book again in next week's Marvel's epilogue. Um, uh, there's a, there's a crowd scene and he didn't just put, uh, me and Anne into, uh, the story. He put our kids in too. And he put my son's fiance. In oh, the that's story. so cool. So, I like doing obscure cameos of little comic book trivia. Um, Alex likes to put people he knows, people who are significant either to the story or to him, uh, into the story to sort of commemorate that along with those those uh, Marvel elements. Sure. Well, Marvels is great, but that is only one of the big things that you've done in, in comics in general. <laughs> um, keeping with Marvel, you created the Thunderbolts. Yes. I, as well as I think a lot of people, like the concept of the bad guys who are trying to do good, whether it's they're forced or whether they want to reform or whatever. What is your feeling, I guess, about that topic, about about the bad guys who are doing good for X reason? I love redemption stories. Yeah? I absolutely love redemption stories. When I was 10, 12, I don't know when it started, there was a TV show called Elias Smith & Jones. Elias Smith & Jones was a ripoff of Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. Mm-hmm. Um, there was, there was a... Uh, there's a moment in the movie, Butch, uh, the Butch Cassidy movie, where um, they talk about, you know, joining the army in return for amnesty, you know, going to the governor, making right. a deal. And their sheriff friend says, there's no way that's going to work. And whoever made Butch Cass- whoever made Alias Smith and Jones said, but that's a great idea. Mm-hmm. So Hannibal Hayes and Kid Curry are basically Butch and Sundance. They do make a deal with the governor. They stay out of trouble for a year, and uh, he will consider pardoning them. 
but in the meantime, they're still wanted. So they're wanted criminals trying to stay on the right side <laughs> of the law, which, you know, every week involves stopping some bad guy who otherwise, you know, otherwise they'll get the blame for whatever the bad guy is going to do. And I I just, I just, I I love that whole premise. I love that whole idea. There's characters like the saint who started out as a, as a gentlemanly rogue cat burglar and who over time became a much more unalloyed hero. You know, guys like the green hornet did it in reverse. You know, he was a hero pretending to be a criminal so that he could get intel on the inside. But that, That crossing the line is always uh, is always fun and interesting. And I think the redemption stories are cool too because villains are often thought of as the more interesting characters because there's more range, they could do more stuff. But I think when the one thing about a villain is he's still a villain. So you as theoretically a person who's reading or watching these stories who are not a villain, you kind of are supposed to want to root for the good guy. When yeah. you take the bad guy and make him a good guy, it's like the best of both worlds, right? Yeah, I've often described uh, Thunderbolts as uh, doing the character stuff in Thunderbolts was like being able to do the Avengers except Loki is on the team. Sure, <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that we had characters like uh, Mach 1 and, and Songbird. That's the one I couldn't remember before. Go. Screaming Mimi and Songbird, um, who were genuinely reforming. Um, and we had characters like Citizen V and Techno. Citizen V was just, you know, he's going to stay arrogant and, and self-concerned. Sure. And Techno literally doesn't care. He wants to solve problems. Mm-hmm. You know, if you pay him money to solve problems, he will he will, he will will do that. He's the fixer. He will fix things. And uh, if you pay him to come up with superhero things to do, he'll do that. If you pay him to come up with supervillain things to do, just as good. You get the check. But then we had Moonstone. And Moonstone is someone who sees the advantage in acting like a hero. Because the police won't be chasing you. Right. But she is not in any way a hero. She wants to do the convenient thing that will give her the most uh, uh, money and um, uh, luxury and comfort. Having somebody like that doing a team like the Avengers, you know, one of the ground rules is they're on a mission. Mm-hmm. You know, they, are, they, they share that mission. They want to accomplish what the Avengers are supposed to accomplish. The Thunderbolts all had different reasons for being there. Which all I think is a great dynamic, and it makes the team that much more uh, multifaceted. You know, right. it really, it's, it's, it's more interesting. Right, because, you know, uh, Mach 1 has his past and his particular urges. He got into being a criminal because he wanted respect. Atlas got into being a, a criminal because he's kind of easily pushed around. He does what other people tell him to do. He even got superpowers because he was, he'd been a flunky for Baron Zemo in the South American jungle. And he was trying to make it out of the jungle after the whole war was over. And he had a broken leg and he didn't, you know, he stumbled onto uh, the Enchantress with this, these machines that had been used to make Wonder Man. And she says, hey, big boy, you want to get out of the jungle? Well, you get into this machine, we'll give you superpowers and then we'll go bust up the Avengers. And he's like, it'll get me out of the jungle. <laughs> She's cute. Okay. Um, so, so, you know, when I went into it, I thought Atlas was the guy who was going to become the hero. Mm-hmm. But I, as I was writing it, I was discovering he may have broad shoulders, but they're weak shoulders. Interesting. You know, he follows orders. Mach 1 was the guy who wanted respect. So when he got respect as a hero, his reaction was, this is awesome. I need to do more of this. This, this is what my life has been missing. This completes me. Songbird, you know, was running away from a, a, a troubled childhood. You know, her mom had been a criminal. Uh, she'd... Uh, gotten into the lady wrestling business because it, that was what was available to her. So she had to figure out who she wanted to be. Um, techno, we already talked about it. He's sure. pretty much a sociopath. But all he wants is a challenge. 
having a team that isn't all pulling in the same direction, that is doing different things. You know, it's one thing to have a Hawkeye and Captain America argue about how best to accomplish the goal of beating the bad guys. It's still the same goal. In the Thunderbolts, you know, one guy's thinking this will help us take over the world. And another guy is saying, you know, if I betrayed him, I'd, right. I'd have more self-respect. And somebody else is going, this is awesome, but we don't need to take over the world because that's a lot of work. <laughs> so, <laughs> And Atlas is like, whatever you guys want to do, just let me know. I'll right. help out. Yes. Atlas is like, you know, we should totally reform when he's talking to somebody who's saying that's the right. thing to do. Oh, it makes perfect sense. And then Citizen V comes along and says, Atlas, do this. And he's like, ah, yeah, right it. away. Um, because he's a flunky. It was just so much fun working with, with Outcast who had such varied motivations. Well, it's fun to read those stories. Let's do this. Warner Brothers, Disney, all these different companies come to you and say, we want to make, whether it's a comic or a, a movie, just grab a bunch of bad guys. Let's say let's say four. Uh-huh. From any mediums, any properties, it doesn't have to all be the same thing. Who would be your, 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 let's say, four bad guys that we can put together to make a new Thunderbolts-esque team? But it could be from anything, any universes shared together. Oh, geez. It's really hard to do that. Let's just start off with, you know, Butch Cassidy. Okay. Because he's smart and uh, he, you know, he, he thinks things through and, you know, Paul Newman played him in the movie. So he's, okay. he's, he's going to be, he's going to be fun. I guess I don't want to go to Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde because Alan Moore had already did that. When you're saying Butch Cassidy, I'm thinking Pike from uh, Wild Bunch because I think that, I mean, assuming that they were still alive, that's, that would be super cool. <laughs> William Holden's character trying to get back. Yeah, but, you know, if we're picking four characters from various places. You can't have two cowboys, yeah. Yeah, you, go, you already got the cowboy. Yeah. Anakin Skywalker. Oh, Pre-Vader. No. Yeah. No? Okay. Well, You're pre, the writer. Pre, You're the writer. Pre-Vader, he's not really a bad guy. Not he's, yet. He's just iffy. But I, I hated that whole, the, the prequel. No, don't go, either, don't, go, don't go by the prequels. Imagine yourself what it would be like. Honestly, I'd rather have Jar Jar. But he's not, <laughs> he's, he's, he's not a villain. That's the book you need to write right there. But what if Jar Jar was Jar Jar a hero? Jar villain. No, villain. What if he's a villain? What if, what, okay. if, what if there's something he did? Okay. Uh, backing up Butch Cassidy is Q. Okay. Because he's... Something in his past is shady? He's dangerous. I don't mean James Bond's Q. I mean Star Trek's Q. Oh, okay. All right. Okay, fair enough. That would be... I would like to see the two backing him up. I like that. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're choosing some pretty... Well, I guess it's a a Star Trek character, but some grounded characters. We're not going superheroes. Q? Oh, no, that that one. But I guess Butch Cassidy was your first one. Yeah, but, you know, we've been talking about him earlier, and he was a bank robber. He's right in there. (laughs) He's a bank robber. (laughs) So, so, uh, so, you know, we've got a, we got a TV character, we've got a movie character. Trouble is with novels, if you've got a long-running serial, it's usually about the heroes. Right. Uh, you could pick probably some interesting villains from, like, Doc Savage, but I don't know enough about, about Doc Savage to, to, to know them. You know, if you go to, to comics, you know, I, I, I already got to loot the Marvel Universe right, you for did villains. That um, I got to do it twice, because when we did the new Thunderbolts with, with Fabian, when they got brought back, uh, I, I got to make up that team too. Mm-hmm. And at that point, they didn't need to be masters of evil anymore. Right. This is this is how my brain works. Just the other day, I reread the the Jack Kirby Jimmy Olsen, and there's this character who I thought got fairly short shrift, a villain named Victor Volcanum, and he's kind of a, a Jules Verne type villain. He's a couple of hundred years old, fell into a volcano uh, in the 1800s sometime, and invented a way to use the volcanic energies to be essentially immortal and and he wants to rule the world uh but he wants to like rule the world from his high-tech blimp um you know and 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 everything about him is is 18th century his clothes his attitude um and so he supplies the headquarters and uh, 
and the and the, and, and the backing and everything. And and he'd be fun because if he's going to pretend to be a superhero or a hero of any sort, he's going to pretend to be uh, an 18th century hero, which is, you know, that's where Butch Cassidy, I guess, is coming from, too. But we really need, you know, there's three characters. I picked three men. Um, I've even picked three white men, although I guess Q... It doesn't really count as a human, (laughs) but uh, Chelsea Kane wrote a series of crime thrillers about a police detective and his bizarre relationship with a serial killer, a female serial killer named Gretchen something. I don't remember Gretchen's last name, but Gretchen is sort of like Hannibal Lecter. In a novel, in a book series? Yeah, if if Hannibal Lecter hung around Portland. (laughs) And finding ways, I mean, Gretchen wouldn't, like Moonstone, Gretchen would never be a hero. Right. But Gretchen might be doing it to play the long game. You know, Butch Cassidy, you could see him becoming a hero. Right. Because what he wants is, uh, he wants a good life on on his own terms. You know, Victor Volcanum has been living in a volcano for 150 years. He's not... uh, (laughs) <laughs> you know, whatever whatever social issues he's got, uh, you know, the, the, the dealing with the public is going to is going to alter them. And Q, Q is just going to be a, a, a complete wild card because he, he he works on whim. So that'd be a fun team to play with. I'd read it. I'd watch it. What's it called? Put you on the spot again. What's oh, it called? Oh, man. Um, <laughs> I'm going to call it the hole in the wall gang. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this has been this has been great, Mr. Music. Thank you so much for taking a couple minutes to chat with us. Oh, my pleasure. I could I could do twenty more minutes on either topic, but I know you got a lot to do. You got panels on panels on panels that just sit sat you in one specific room for the whole day. You said right? They sat me in the room at the beginning of the day. Oh, and and, and then and, another at the end for today at least. I'm I'm at that end of the hall. Uh, and I'm not going far from there Camping because out. if I do, I just have to go back. <laughs> that sounds like a good day, Connor. Though. Thanks for taking a couple minutes to talk to us. Kurt Busick, have a great rest of the con. Oh, I got to show you. We have a top secret Launchpad podcast handshake. Oh, secret okay. handshake, ready? Okay. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to go sideways. We're going to come in and we're going to say, whoosh. Then when we clap, you could turn inverted and then we go up and make like a raspberry noise with your tongue. Can I teach you the superhero handshake instead? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. Okay, the first is, it's it's simple. You fight. Okay. And then you team up. Oh, okay. So it's a it's a fist bump and then a regular handshake. Right. It's it, but it's that's how all Marvel superhero team ups work. <laughs> I never heard that. First before. you fight, then you team up. I like that. Yeah. All right. Let, let's do that. Let's do okay. that one then. Fight and, and team, team up. up. And that way, <laughs> you know, I don't have to make silly noises with my face. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, my um, pleasure. Launchpad Podcast, San Diego Comic Con, two thousand nineteen. We are the Launchpad, and we are out. Ignition sequence start. Six. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engines running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff.